Well, we're in a series called The Storyteller. You can open up your Bibles to Matthew 13, and I'll meet you there in, in a few minutes. Um, we all love stories. You love stories. I love stories. In fact, um, uh, what I was told is that um, Carrie told us this. Carrie's on our staff team, and she, she oversees our social media. She said uh, that most people, they don't look at the pictures on Instagram anymore if they're under like 30 years old. They only look at the stories. I don't know, if you didn't know that, you're probably over 30 years old, okay? That's okay. Uh, well, what they do is they end up looking at just the story function at the very top because we love stories. We love to tell stories. We love the video. Uh, and so it's an incredibly, they, they said that there's about 500 million individual users every day who use this stories function on Instagram. And we love stories, but, it, but it's more than just a, a part of our social media. I want you to understand this if you don't know this already. Everywhere you go, somebody's trying to tell you a story. The culture is trying to tell you a story. Every magazine cover is a story. It's this is what's wrong with you and this is how to have a great life. Every sponsored ad on your Facebook or on your Instagram or every commercial that you've ever seen is telling you a story. The new Taylor Swift album is telling a story. That's why she launches it. That's why she, all the songs have certain names. That's why it's all, it's all branded to launch to tell you a story. Every documentary that you've ever seen, every Netflix series that you've ever watched, every time you've ever gone to the movie theater, everybody's telling you a story. Some stories are better than others. Almost every story has the same plot line. Uh, this is where everything came from. This is what's wrong with you. Basically, here's the main story. This is what's wrong with you, and this is how we can fix it or how you can fix it. And therefore, this is what you should give your life to. Now, why am I talking about this? Because as Christians, those of us, and I know not everyone in this room is a Christian, but those of us who are Christians, we would say, we have the best story that you could ever have. It's like, you want a story about forgiveness? We got it. You want a story about sacrifice? We have it. You want a story about pursuit and love? We've got it. But we're not very good at telling it. Like, we have the best story, but we probably could be a lot better at telling it. And, and you know that, and I know that. We're not very good at, in a compelling way, talking about the story that God's written for us from Genesis to Revelation. And so what we're doing in this series, and this is why this is so important, is we're taking eight weeks to look at Jesus Christ, the greatest storyteller of all time. And Jesus comes and he tells basically 40 stories, roughly. It's always, how do you count the parables? He always, roughly about 40 stories. And here's what a parable is, and this is what we've been studying. We call them stories, but they're parables. Uh, a parable is a story, it really is, it's a earthly story about a heavenly truth. That's what it is. Because honestly, all this heavenly stuff, like if I talked about love and forgiveness and faith and all that, it's very hard for us to talk about, but um, if, I, if I, I can make it, or Jesus makes, the abstract accessible through stories. And so what we've been doing is we've been walking through them. And today, we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. And let me just give you a little background. Uh, Jesus is growing in popularity. You may not know this. Jesus, uh, he had years of obscurity. It's really, really interesting. We know very little about Jesus until he's 30. Like, we've got a lot about his birth, and then we have one incident about him being 12, and then all of a sudden he's 30. And all we know is that he grew up poor, he was a blue-collar guy, he worked for his dad, he, sw he swung a, a, a hammer for 30 years in relative obscurity. And then he comes into ministry, and he calls kind of a, a unique group of guys from all over, and it's his community group. And he's got these 12 guys, and, and they're, I mean, they, I've told you this before, but the average age is probably somewhere between 15 and 20. So here he's 30, he's got these 15 to 20 year olds that are hanging around him, and he's got a DNA group, he's got three guys that he's closer with, and, and that's his ministry for the first year. And he goes out and he starts teaching, preaching, and healing. And that's important, right? Because he cares for the three things we should care for. He cares for the soul, he cares for the body, and he cares for the mind. That was the ministry of Jesus. 
He had a healing, preaching, teaching ministry. So there he goes and he does that. And, and, and he's so compelling that as he begins to teach these stories, crowds come out to him. And then there's this really interesting thing that happens. And, and, and I won't read all of Matthew 13 to you guys. But in Matthew 13, the crowds start to come up and they start to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it says that at that point, Jesus only spoke to the crowds in parables. Let's really think about it. Okay, and, and here's what other, here else, follow me on this. Here's what else is interesting about the parables. Of the seven parables that he tells in Matthew 13, which we're going to look at tonight, of the seven parables, five of them he does not explain. Ever. He never, like, like, so the parable of the sower, which we won't, I, I preached on that two years ago. The parable of the sower, he tells you everything. He's like, all right, the seed's the word, the soil's this, the birds are this, and Okay, you're like, great. And then he tells a parable of the wheat and the weeds. And you're like, he's like, all right, the weed is the Christians and the tares are the non-believers and they grow up together and the angels harvest. And you're like, okay, that was helpful. But then he tells these two little parables in between that, that I'm going to read to you. And he never gives any explanation. But, but here, here's the big idea. What, what he says with the parables is that they do two things. And this is so important to understand. That parables conceal and reveal depending on your heart. So even when I read this, they, they can see what Jesus says is, I'm going to teach in parables so that if you don't want to know, you're not going to know. If you want to have a hard heart and be rebellious and think you're smarter than God and think that it's all archaic, then you're not going to get it. But if you're humble and if you want to learn, then you're going to keep looking at this and you're going to keep seeing new things. And it's going to dissect your heart like nothing you've ever had happen before. So that's the concealing and the revealing power. And I, and I want you to see this. Let's look at the whole passage because it's only three ver four verses. Verse 31, he put another parable before them. We talked about what parables are. Saying the kingdom of heaven, we're gonna talk about that. That is the main, main theme, thesis, and thrust of everything that Jesus teaches. He is, it would be safe to say, he is obsessed with the kingdom. The first thing when he arrives, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then, this doesn't sound too attractive to the average person of that day. Hey, the kingdom of heaven, what you've been waiting for forever, what the whole Old Testament's about, it's like a grain of mustard seed. Which a grain of mustard seed is about the size of a, of a speck of dust or a grain of salt. It's super small. It's super unattractive. It's super insignificant. It's super humbling. You might miss it if you're not looking for it. He says, that's what the kingdom of God's like, but the man took it and he did something with it. He didn't talk about it. He didn't write books about it. He sowed it. He sowed it in the field, and it's the smallest of all seeds. Now, that's interesting because some scholars will say, critical scholars will say, well, it's actually not the smallest seed. And because it's not the smallest seed, this means that Jesus didn't know that. That means Jesus is not God. And, and it may sound silly to some of us, but that's the kind of things that critical professors tell freshmen in college when they show up at university to take a religion class, and they think they might be taught the Bible, and they're taught a bunch of humbo-jumbo. And, and what he's doing here, let me just explain this, he's using hyperbole. You do this all the time. You're like, it took forever to get here. It's like, it took you 30 minutes. But, I, but I'm not calling you a liar. I know what you mean. You're like, everybody was here. It's like, no, your house is small. And it just felt like everybody was there. Right? You know? Uh, I'm starving. It's like, well, you ate four hours ago, but I know what you mean. You're hungry. I'm not, but, so that's what he's doing. He's, saying, he's using a, a, a hyperbolic statement of the day. Here's what he says. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants. So, so one of the big ideas in this whole text is the contrast in size. 
It starts small, but never stays small. That's the point. It starts small, but it never stays small. But when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And it's like, that's the end of it. He doesn't ever explain it. But really, what it's about, and I'm going to unpack all of it, it's about the external advancement of the kingdom of God everywhere on earth. Which we look back now and go, that's amazing, 12 people to over 1 billion people now. We, we kind of see that locally, nationally, globally, Judea, Samaria, and into the earth. We, we see it. But he doesn't stop, stop there. And, and these two parables are always found together. Now he tells you the parable of the leaven. Let me read this to you, verse 33. He told them another parable, which is connected. The kingdom of heaven, same idea. We'll talk about all that. It's like leaven, or we would say maybe yeast. Same idea. That a woman took. So it was a man first time, now it's a woman, because God uses men and women in ministry. Took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So the tree, the mustard seed, is about the external growth of the gospel, advancing to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the yeast is about the internal um, transformation the gospel makes in a person's whole life. And that's what we're going to be looking at. So let's take each one of these, one by one, starting again in verse 31. He put another parable before them. Now I want to say who them is, because to understand what Jesus is saying, you have to understand who he's saying it to, right? And he always had fans, he had foes, he had friends. Uh, a good way to think about who Jesus spoke to is the same three types of people that are in this room, and they're in every room. And I, and I think about this. When I'm speaking, when I'm teaching, there's always three types of people in every room. Because right when we read the Bible, this isn't what happened, this is what happens. This is incredibly relevant to us and to our lives today. There's three types of people in this room today. There are, what we see are the true believers. And they're the people who they, afterwards, they say, what does it mean? Help me understand. I want to apply this to my life. And they tend to be a small group. At the end of this chapter, it says, Jesus spoke only in parables, but to his disciples privately, he explained everything. It's a small group. There's a larger group that would be called the seekers, okay? They're the de-church, they're the unchurch. that's what we call them today. Uh, everybody else has given up on them. And so what's so interesting about Jesus, what makes him so confusing to people is that people who were not like him liked him. And people who were very different from him were attracted to him. He has prostitutes. He has tax collectors. He has sinners. The lost and the least are constantly attracted to him. And, and, and what's interesting is, is he's very kind to them. He offers forgiveness to them. He talks about the grace of God to them. But then there's a third type. And they're the skeptics. And it's different than the skeptics of today. We, we, we think, when, we hear, when I tell you skeptic, you're like um, atheist. Uh, you're thinking like critical professor at a university. What the skeptics of that day were, were they were the religious leaders of that day. Which is something to probably think about for about a year. Like really think about. That the people who knew their Bible best missed Jesus. And he said he had the hardest things to say to religious people. And they were so wooden, they could not get what he was saying. But on a couple different situations, they say afterwards, which is kind of humorous, they say to each other, I think he's talking about us. They say that after several of the parables. So here's what he does. He says, I'm going to do parables. And he says, I'm going to, look at the phrase. Every phrase of scripture is important. He says, I'm going to put it before them. Now, this is interesting. What this means is, I'm going to put it before them. What will you do with it? And that's the great question of, of your life. What will you do with God's word? In fact, next week, and what, the parable we're going to look at next week, Jesus starts this way. There's a whole context I won't get into, but right before he tells next week's parable, we'll get into, he looks at them, he goes, what do you think? And then he tells a story. 
In other words, what he wants to know is, are you willing to wrestle with God's word? This, I hope, is comforting to you. Listen, when God could name, and he could name his people anything, when God named his Old Testament people, he calls them Israel, Israel, which literally means the people that wrestle with God. I hope that's comforting. If, you're, if you've ever been like, I feel like I'm wrestling with God. I feel like God's word says this, but I'm trying to apply it, but I have my doubts, and I have my questions, and my classmates, and my coworkers, and my coach feel like they're saying something differently, my parents, and my professors, and I'm wrestling with God. It's be, be comforted by that. In fact, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to wrestle with God's word in community, which, by the way, is why we keep talking about community groups. And if you're not in a community group, you're not going to get everything you could out of this series because what you do in a community group is you wrestle out all of this. Like last week, we talked about unforgiveness. What's the point of that community group? To deal with it in your life. And to, get re- and to really talk about how you've not been able to forgive your dad for 10 years. That's, that's, what, that's what that's about. And not even realizing that there's been bitterness in your marriage for the last five years and maybe for the first time you're able to talk to somebody and maybe get the help that you need. That's why you need a community group. And so we're supposed to wrestle with God's word. Here's what this means. This means that what it means to be a Christian is to ask this question. You are growing and saying, how does God's word speak to every area of my life? And you're asking it as you, as you because the longer you're a Christian, right, the more you realize God's word speaks to every area of my life. Right? All of a sudden you, uh, you start dating. You're like, well, what does the Bible say about dating and purity and marriage and all that? Maybe you turn 21, you're like, well, what does the Bible say about alcohol? And I want to understand that. Maybe you get a house. What does the Bible say about debt and leveraging it? Is there good debt? Is there, what, what, how do I understand all that? Maybe you're struggling with anxiety and depression, and you're like, well, what, what does the Bible say about mental illness? And, and that, that, that's what it means. That's what it literally means to be um, wrestling with God's word and asking it. This is why Charles Spurgeon, my favorite preacher of the 1800s, he said, the Bible that's falling apart often belongs to the person whose life is not. That's an incredible line. That the Bible that's falling apart, the person who's going, There's got, it's got to speak to this in my life. Like I've got a terrible relationship with my mother-in-law. It's got to speak to this. I have this out of control anger problem. The Bible has to speak to this. And you wrestle with it. Like if you've ever read Martin Luther, Martin Luther, he wrote this amazing treatise to introduce the book of Romans. And I won't get into all this, but... But basically, he writes this long treatise, and if you know anything about Romans, Romans is like the filet mignon of the New Testament. It is like, the, it is like this theological treatise, and, and he writes this introduction to it, and it, it's kind of verbose, some of the things he says, but, but at one part, he says, as he's talking about what it's been like to study Romans, is Martin Luther says, I beat on the apostle Paul until I understood him. He said, I beat on him until Romans chapter one opened up, and I understood that I could be justified by faith alone. And you go, this is the guy who's wrestling with Scripture. And so this is, this is what, one of the reasons that it comes to us in story and not just in direct truth all the time and direct statements all the time is so that we could wrestle with these things. But then here's the second thing he talks about is the kingdom of God. And I want you to see this. Verse 31, he put another parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven. Or you could say the kingdom of God. Or you could say the kingdom of Christ. Now what is the kingdom of God? This is, so most because we're American right? Uh, because we're American. Um, we, we, uh, we, we tend to think of everything individually. We think of every, everything autonomously. We think, we think becoming a Christian is God saving me so I can have a personal relationship with him, right? That's how it's talked about. Would you like to have, would you like to ask Jesus Christ into your heart? Which I get, it's, it's, it's not wrong, and I get it, and it's really cute, and it's really helpful for kids, and it does communicate something. I'm not making fun of it, but you can't find that type of language in the Bible, 
The ask Jesus into your heart language is not in the Bible. The language that's in the Bible is enter the kingdom of God. Enter it. Which is like see it for what it is. See that there's another king and it's not you and that's very offensive. And repent and believe. Change your mind. Believe what God has said and welcome God into your life. And here's what the kingdom of God means because it's a complex phrase that never has one definition because it shows up all these different places. But the best definition I've ever heard kind of try to summarize all of it is it's life with God under the rule of Jesus. Which means that what God's doing is he's not just saving you, he's saving a people and he's establishing a kingdom. And it's that becoming a Christian is not intellectually assenting that you're a sinner. It's, It's at least that. But more than that, it's a whole new way of living. That the kingdom of God is what your life would look like if Jesus had his way. That's another way to say it. It's like, well, what would your sexual life look like if Jesus had his way? What would your marriage look like if Jesus had his way? What would your finances look like if Jesus had his way? If it was like, how do I do life with God understanding that I'm under his word? And, And what's so convicting is that we're actually supposed to be the kind of people, those of us who say we're Christians, we're supposed to be the kind of people that when people walk into our home, they go, and I've, I've seen this a couple times where you walk into someone's home and you're like, well, the way this husband and wife are relating, it's like, it's like the kingdom of God. It's like, you know, he's leading and he's sacrificing and he's nourishing her and, he's, and, and she's submitting to him. And I know that all sounds archaic, except for when you see it, then it's attractive. When these things are preached, everyone gets angry, but when they're seen, everybody's attracted to him, wishes they could live their life that way. And every once in a while, you just see somebody, and they're living where like, God's really in control. And they're recognizing that, and they're trying to live that out of their life, and, it, and it's just an incredible thing. And so th- this kingdom of God, now, now here's the big thing about the kingdom of God that you have to understand. To understand, In fact, Jesus told the parables. This is kind of one of the first parables Jesus tells, the mustard seed, so that we can understand all the other parables. And here's the big idea with the kingdom of God. It's, uh, it's a theological phrase, but you guys can get this. It's already, not yet. That's what the kingdom of God means. That it's, that it's already, the kingdom of God has already come, but not yet in its full fulfillment. And, and here's why this is important. The Jews of that day thought, here's what the kingdom of God's going to happen. Um, the Messiah is going to come in power, in glory, in authority. He's going to kill everybody, and he's going to take the Jews home. And then the kingdom of God comes and say, it's actually more like a mustard seed. Here's what already not yet means. It means that the kingdom is really here, but not fully here. It means, you know this, you, st- you could be a Christian and you still struggle with sin and suffering. You have the Holy Spirit and you still sin. You have the promises of God, but they're not fully fulfilled. You, you have to still live by faith, you, you don't have sight. You can't live by sight yet. You don't get to see God. You are saved, but you're still going to die. I mean, these are, you have to understand, these are real realities. You're really part of God's family and we really are brothers and sisters and God really is our father and the church really is our family, but it's a very dysfunctional family, <laughs> highly dysfunctional. And we're not, we're not home yet. And so he gives us his already not yet, which the, the best illustration in life that we see this is either being pregnant or being engaged. Those two stages of life are wonderful, but nobody wants to live in them forever. <laughs> no one says, I'm eight months pregnant, this is awesome, let's just do this forever, right? Because it's like, well, what, what are you? You're already not yet. It's like, okay, the baby's about to be born, and we're really excited, and maybe the baby has a name, and the room's ready, and it, right? It's already not yet. Engagement's very similar, especially if you're trying to remain sexually pure and do things God way and wait till marriage. It's like after about four days of engagement, you're like, when's the wedding? You know, 
Like, I don't want to do this. We're planning the honeymoon. We're, we're, we're getting the apartment ready. We're, you know, it's like this weird, awkward, yet beautiful, already, not yet. And so he, he's dealing with this tension. And, and here's a couple other things that help us with, this is why we, we need to be more kingdom people. We need to talk about the kingdom more because here's the king, the kingdom is bigger than the church. So this is something that seminary students talk about late at night. Okay, so I won't spend a lot of time on this. But it's the relationship between the kingdom and the church. And, and really what happens is that the kingdom creates the church, but then the church now preaches the kingdom. And so here's what this, like, what does that mean? Here's what this means practically. That the church does not exist for itself, but has a greater, is a means to a greater end. That God's plan A for the kingdom of God is his church, which is why you'd want to be meaningfully connected to it. And that what the church does is, is it says, hey, we want more people to meet Jesus and be made into his disciples. This is, by the way, why we need all types of churches to reach all types of people. This is why we believe that there are 515 churches in Winston, but really one church in Winston, the Big C Church. I'll give you an example. I was, I was in a meeting this week talking to a guy, and I just met him, really nice guy. And uh, he starts telling me about, telling a group of us about his church. And he's here in kind of the Yatkin County area, and he says, here's my passion. He said, I've got a passion, and we were talking, and he, he, he kind of knew a little bit what's going on here in Winston. He said, man, I'm excited about what's going on in Winston. He goes, I have no desire to ever plant a church in Winston. He goes, I want to go to the most rural areas in Yakin County. And then he mentioned a lot of other villes and boroughs and counties that I've, in tons that I've never heard of, okay, <laughs> in this Winston area. And he said, and I just want to go there, and, and, and I want to go plant churches where, there's, where they've never seen the contemporary model of a church ever. And I just started realizing, this guy's got, and he, and he goes, because that's my people. He said, that's where I grew up. And it wasn't until such and such a time that I ever saw a church like this. And so my heart is to plant churches in all the rural areas of North Carolina. I thought, well, that's a vision. And we need that. And it takes all types of churches to reach all types of people. Second thing is that the, the kingdom is better than the culture. Now, this is what we don't really believe. Right? What we're supposed to be, and, and none of us really are, maybe there's a few of us in here, but because we always want to think that we're the exception and we're actually doing this, but we're probably not. Most of us are more influenced and informed and infected by the culture than we would ever be by, by uh, the kingdom. And here's what I mean by this. If you think about it, and, and you, again, you are probably the, no, you're actually not the exception to this, but, but none of us are the exception to this. But most people, what do they do at night? How do they spend almost all their free time? I'll tell you, social media and streaming. Right? Most husbands, I'm being stereotypical, most husbands that complain about their wives on a shallow level, it's she's on social media too much. Most wives that complain about their husbands, he's watching way too much TV. Well, it's because we are more influenced by Netflix, streaming, and by social media than we are by Scripture. Right? I mean, it's interesting. Your social media knows more about you than you know about you. You're like, you get a sponsored ad, you're like, I guess I am interested in this. You know? <laughs> wow. All right, I never even heard of this. This is great. Uh, it's like the people that we follow, right? The things that we do, the people that we're comparing ourselves to. And so it's so difficult to be more influenced and more informed by scriptures, by king, the kingdom than it is by the culture. It's going to take two things. It's going to take a lot of time in God's word, which most of us probably are not doing. And it's going to take a lot of time around God's people to where we're, we're being influenced by other people who are living this way. And I'm not, I'm not against social media, and I'm not against, you know, watching Netflix or whatever, but, but I'm against it being the main source that's influencing us. Like, let me give you a couple examples. Um, what the culture teaches versus what the kingdom 
teaches. And, and you're going to see these. They're diametrically opposed to one another, diametrically. Um, you've got, here's what the culture says. The culture says the highest value in your entire life should be tolerance, which used to mean I will endure you even though I disagree with you, which is a great definition. And that's a good type of tolerance. But tolerance has been changed to mean I affirm and I approve and I celebrate all of your lifestyles, ideas, perspectives, and sinful behaviors. And we can't do that because culture, highest value is tolerance. Scripture, highest value is truth and repentance. Tolerance says you're okay, I'm okay, we're okay, no one needs to change. Truth and repentance says you're not okay, I'm not okay, we all need to change right away. I mean, that could not be different. Culture says your body is your body and you do whatever you want with it. Kingdom says God created your body, he owns your body, he died for your body, therefore glorify God with your body. Uh, kingdom says, uh, here's what faith is, and we're okay with faith, or sorry, culture. Culture says, here's what faith is, and we're okay with faith. Faith is personal and private feelings in your heart and in your home. That would be the definition the culture uses of faith. What does the Bible say about faith? Faith is public facts about Jesus Christ and is meant to be shared. What is religion? Religion is about good deeds and relationships. That's what the culture says. What does the Bible say? Religion is about good news and repentance. And, and, and we could do this for a while, but what you're going to begin to see is that they are the complete opposite. What does the culture say God is? God is a subjective experience that's kind of like a force. That's what your coworkers and classmates believe. What does the Bible say? God is an objective reality that has a face. Who has a face? And so he's giving us this incredible, it's like, what does it mean to be informed and influenced by the kingdom? He's going to go, look at verse 31, he's going to say, it starts as a mustard seed. It starts as a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, and all is like, wah, wah, wah. It doesn't, it doesn't sound great at first, right? Because none, none of us brag about how small something is, right? It's like, you would not believe how little money I have in my bank account right now. <laughs> no, could you imagine if someone did that? You know, it's, you would not believe how small my church is and how small my home is, you know? How little amount of weight I can lift. I mean, no, nobody brags about how, you know, how small things are. But, but he's going to start out here, and he's going to say, it's small, and it's, it's, it's actually to be pastorally comforting to us, because some of you are going to feel the smallness of the kingdom oftentimes. You'll be like, well, I feel like I'm the only Christian in my neighborhood. Or you just, maybe it's not that you're the only one, it's like you look around and you go, well, this is it. We're all kind of inadequate, and we're not, we're, you know, Paul writes a whole chapter. First Corinthians is basically like, look, God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. Yes, you. You know? <laughs> Not me. Yes, you. Yeah, me. I mean, all of us. And so it's kind of like there's an inadequacy that we just feel in, in that God, that it's like it's us. We're, we're God, you might use us to, Lord willing, maybe do something in the city, do something in our community. So you, you feel the smallness of it. But what he's saying is that it's small. It starts small, but it doesn't stay small. And he talks about the, what he's giving this illustration. It's beautiful. is sowing and reaping. And you know this. This is a major theme in Scripture. Uh, and there's three laws to sowing and reaping that you can't break. They break you but you can't break them. It's that you reap what you sow, you reap later than you sow, and you reap greater than you sow. And you go, well, that's, did you, did you need to say that? I did, because it's so simple, but we forget it. That here's the first thing, that you reap what you sow. You go, well, what does that mean? It, it means that you will reap everything that you are sowing. It means this, that nobody ever gets away with anything. Some of you, you are, you are sowing things that you do not want to reap. And the great lie of Satan is that you won't reap them. Yeah, yeah, I can sow this porn addiction, it won't affect me. 
I, I, can, I can sow this lying habit in my life. I mean, just, it's, just a lot, it's not a lot of lying, but it's some lying. But if I, just, I can sow this into my life, and I won't reap anything. It's like, no, you will. I mean, I, I, I've only been in ministry for 15 years, but I've seen this. I mean, I sat across the table from a guy who didn't know how to tell the truth anymore. Because, the function, because basically what happens is when you lie all the time like that, it's like you break the mechanism in your brain that knows when you're telling the truth and when you're not. It takes a while to break, but you break it. And that's actually part of the function of you reap what you sow is the, the punishment for the sin is built into every sin. So that it actually destroys the mind and the heart and the will that God has given you. So, so every, you reap what you sow is, is, is promise and warning. It's promise and threat. The second thing is that you reap later than you sow. And you go, well, that makes sense too. Yeah, but we always forget that. That's why the Bible talks so much about patience. It's like some of you are like, I'm sowing the seed. It's like, well, keep being patient. Like, I, well, I'm having the conversation. Well, keep having that conversation. Well, I'm inviting them to my house. I'm trying to have, keep doing that. Well, I'm dropping a scripture verse to my, my prodigal son. I'm just kind of trying to encourage him with a text. Well, keep doing it. It's, it's the principle of faithfulness. You know, you've probably heard this before, but you take care of the faithfulness, God will take care of the fruitfulness. So, but then, it, then, then, and this is what's so encouraging and so scary, is that you reap greater than what you sow. Right? You go, well, it's kind of small, and that's why you think you're getting away with some bad things sometimes. Or you think what you're doing is not significant, if it's good. But, but then you see this principle is where somebody sows some type of habit in their life, and they reap it 20 years later, and it's almost too much for them to handle. I mean, there's the grace of God, but I've seen this to where it's like, when it was revealed, it was so big, and there's so much of it, and there's so little of you. And it's like 20 years of lies and deceit and relationships and covering up and lying to yourself. And on the other end, that actually if you sow, if you sow good gospel seed, if you sow good relationships, it's unbelievable what you'd reap long term, right? You maybe heard the proverb, not a biblical proverb, but most people underestimate what they could do in one year. Or sorry, they overestimate what they could do in one year and they underestimate what they could do in 20 years. And that's true in any area of life. Like I, I had an interesting, exciting experience recently. We had a, we had a freshman from Wake Forest he introduced himself to me, and he said, hey, he told me his name. He said, I'm a freshman at Wake, and I wanted to say hello, and I want to say thank you. You led my pastor to Christ. And he told me his pastor's name. He said, you led Brian to Christ. And I started thinking, I'm like, and I knew who he was talking about, and he's talking about Brian, who was a freshman at UNCG. And now when I tell you that story right now, now I've not led that many people to Christ. But when I tell you that story right now, you might go, that sounds amazing. That sounds like a mustard tree. You've got a guy who becomes a pastor, and it's like, well, let me tell you, it felt like a mustard seed when I was doing it. When the dorm was all stinky, you know, and I would walk into his dorm, and his roommate didn't like me. I mean, this is a true story. And, and I'd walk in, and, and, and he wouldn't return my calls. And I was 23, and I'm hanging out in a freshman dorm on campus staff, eating in the calf food, feeling like a loser. I mean, Seriously. I remember that. It's like, I've got, like, I mean, I would have this vision for my job. I'm like, I'm doing ministry. I'm like the Apostle Paul. And then I'd be like, I'm working second shift. You know, that's what I feel. I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm eating calf food. I'm hanging out with kids who are like, you know, why are you here? I'm like, ah, I want to help, you know. <laughs> Go get a real job. It's like, ah, oh, okay. So, so, you know, you'd, you'd have this. And it's like, well, and that's, I think that's the point. It's like, while I'm having these conversations, it just feels like a mustard seed. But then he comes to faith in Christ and it grows. And, and he ends up going into ministry, and, and he ends up, you know, investing in this guy, and now it's come kind of, we're beginning to see the tree, and I don't, you know, obviously the tree's not even done yet. And so here, here's what's so powerful about this. There's a strategy in the smallness of the seed. And some of you, you need to hear that. There's a strategy in the smallness, because here's the thing. Most people's lives cannot handle the mustard tree. 
Like I know, I, I'm thinking of a person in my life right now. He makes too much money. His life is too easy. He has no felt needs. His worldview is completely different. All of his, he has no Christian relationships in his life. And I look over there and I'm like, I, I don't know how I would ever fit a tree there. It's just there's not enough space. But I'm like, maybe I could fit a seed. And, and the way you fit seeds are you ask questions. That's one of the main ways. Christians don't ask enough questions. The world doesn't like us because they think that we have all the answers. It's like we just know the person has all the answers. We don't know all the answers. But it would be more humble if we would ask some questions. And, and you could ask the question, what's your spiritual journey? What's your spiritual background? I've been asking that for 15 years. I've never had someone go, that's very offensive. No one, no one, and if they have even the smallest amount of social skills, they will probably ask you a question back. Oh, well, tell me about your, what kind of home did you grow up in? What do you believe in? And it would let you tell your story and tell the story of the gospel. And so he's, he's basically saying, look, the way that the gospel has always gone forward, yes, there's preaching, that's a big part of it, that's part of the history of the church, but, but really what happens is the way the gospel goes forward is one conversation and one invitation at a time. That's it. How does the gospel go forward in a neighborhood? One conversation. You know, I, I was over someone's house this last weekend on a Friday night, and I'm talking to this couple, and they're, they're in our church, and they moved here for medical, medicine, and, and, and he's telling me, oh, we love this neighborhood, and, and you know, we've built a relationship with them, and we've built a relationship with them, and we're praying for them over there, and I just thought, you guys are the real deal. And you're looking at your neighbor, and you're just thinking one conversation, one invitation at a time. See where it leads. And here's the promise. The promise is in verse 31. We're still in just that one verse. Here's what it says. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than any of the garden trees, and it becomes a tree. So the tree, by, by the way, this is neat. The, in the Old Testament, the tree, there's a couple different images in the Old Testament. A ladder, a tree, and a staircase are three of them. It's, it's a constant image of, is there something that would bridge heaven and earth? It's powerful. Is there something that would bridge heaven and earth that would connect humanity and divinity? That's what this tree is. And it ends up being, and what is a tree? a tree? A tree represents growth and a tree represents strength and a tree represents maturity. And what he's saying is that what the tree represents is it's the universal mission of the church to reach every man, woman, and child, to have local, national, and global missions. And it says, that's why the beautiful picture at the end, look at verse 31 again, 32, I'm sorry. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than any of the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air, and that represents the Gentiles. We know that because other places, Jesus talks about the birds as the Gentiles. That's those who don't yet believe. Isn't this amazing? The birds of the air come, and they make nests in its branches. That what the kingdom should be and what the church should be is it should be a place where people can make a home. It's a place where people can have a second chance. It's a place where people can find their spiritual family. It's a place where people can be forgiven. They can be healed. They can be restored. It's such a beautiful picture. It's a place of commitment. Why do they make their nests? They're not just attending. It's not just where they go and sing songs and listen to sermons. They're deeply connected here. They're making their home here. It's a beautiful picture. And then he ends with the internal implication of it. I want you to see this. Verse 33, he told them another parable. We won't spend as much time on this one. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, or we could say yeast, that a woman took and hid. Now that's interesting. This is The first is you're going to see it. It's going to grow and it's going to affect everything and it's going to affect every tribe, tongue, and nation. That one's external. This one's internal. And he, look at the language. He took and hid it 
It's how it secretly and silently grows. It says this, he, the woman took and hid in three measures of flour. That's enough flour to, to feed 150 people. It's about as much flour as you would make dough for making 40 pizzas. So it's a lot of flour. That's the whole idea. That a little bit of leaven goes a long way. It says this, hid it in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, this is interesting. Here's what yeast in the Bible represents. Yeast in the New Testament, it shows up several different places. It always represents the overwhelming influence of something. That's what yeast means. So usually, this is neat. Usually, it's negative almost every time it shows up. I think every other time it shows up except for this one, it's negative. So you guys, those of you who know your Bible, you're probably thinking of when Jesus says to the Pharisees, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. He says it to his disciples about the Pharisees. And... Um, and they, you know, they get confused, right, because they don't know. Oh, what do you mean? You know, do we not bring bread? And he goes, that's what I'm talking about. And then he says this. I'm talking about their hypocrisy, which is really interesting. What he's saying is if you begin to hang around people who say one thing and do something else, you're going to start doing that. And, and really, it's a warning. Like, you don't want to let things into your life because then they can begin to affect and influence your whole life. You know, it's like, and you know this, the first time you lie to your spouse, it's very difficult. The second time, it's a little harder. The third time, you've, you've, it's become pretty natural to you. And you can let in things into your life that you're like, and that's why people sometimes go, I don't know how, how I got here. You got there one step at a time. You let something into your life that wanted to spread and was infecting and affecting more and more things. Paul, interesting, Paul in Galatians 5 or 6, he says, um, he says, you were running well. He said, who hindered you? This is interesting. He says, you were running this awesome race. Who hindered you? He goes, don't you know a little yeast leavens the whole lump? Which is interesting. He goes, you guys were like super Christians. You were like fully devoted to the Lord. And then someone taught you casual, comfortable, convenient Christianity. And it's affected and infected all of your life. And that happened. I've seen that happen all the time. Someone comes to faith in Christ, they're like, that's it. I got to share my, work, my faith at work. And then some Christians come around and go, you don't really need to do that. Well, I mean, you do, but not like you're doing it. You're actually like doing it, doing it. We just say that we do it. You know? And, and then so, you know, well, man, well, I, I got I to gotta actually give my, I got to actually figure out a percentage of my money and I got it. Well, not, you don't know right now. You don't make very much. You don't need to do it right now. Well, man, I got to confess this sin. Like I got to tell, no, no, we don't actually, we don't actually do that. I mean, no one says it quite like that, but I've seen this happen enough times. This is why, by the way, new believers in a church is so healthy. It gives us the gift of disorientation. And, and see, here's what happens that for all of us, there are areas of our life that we have not allowed the yeast or leaven of the gospel to influence and affect, right? And they tend to be about the same for most of us Americans. Most people say, all right, the, the leaven of the gospel can affect everything except for my sexuality. Because I'm unique, and the scripture doesn't understand me and what it's like to be 21st century and what it's like to be my age and what it's like to have my emotions and my feelings, even though the scripture doesn't know, know what it's like. I'll tell you another area. Another area is money, possessions, finances, resources. I had a situation this week. I was meeting with a guy, not in our church, but a guy, really neat guy, really challenged me in a couple different areas in a good way. And he said, you know, Kyle, we're talking about generosity. He said, Kyle, I've been setting my life up, my wife and I, he said, I've been setting my life up for the last few years to put my finances in order to where the largest check I write every month can be to the kingdom of God. He said, I'm rearranging my retirement. I'm redoing my mortgage. I'm redoing some other things because there's just, I feel like God's calling me to write my biggest check to the kingdom of God every month. So that's somebody who's letting the yeast of the gospel, the leaven of the gospel touch every area of his life. 
And, and here's, the, here's, the, here's what we have to believe, right? What, is, what, does, what does yeast or leaven do to bread? It makes it better, right? Have you ever had unleavened bread? Gross. If you've never had it, you don't want to eat it. It, what we, and look, it makes it better. I didn't say it makes it easier. It makes it more comfortable. I didn't say that. But what, what leaven does is it makes it better. And, and what we don't believe oftentimes is we believe if God, if my life, if I were biblical, I'd be miserable. We, some version of that, instead of saying, well, actually, what if I brought my sexuality and my finances and my emotions and my marriage and my career and my future and my ambitions and I brought them all underneath the kingdom of God? And I had life with God under the rule of Jesus, and I let the gospel speak to all these areas. And then what, was it like, what would it be like if I was committed to sowing, to sowing the right things? And here's the other thing I didn't say earlier. If we do not sow the gospel, there will be a generation, there will be a famine in the next generation. We have to sow the gospel. When I say we've got 200 kids next door each week, we are committed to sowing the gospel. Because if we don't, they're gonna, they're gonna wake up or they're going to grow up in a, in a society and in a nation that has no resemblance of the gospel anymore. No Christian worldview at all. They're going to have no understanding. And we've got, it's not, it's not cool to cultivate. It, it doesn't look great to sow, but we've got to be committed to doing those things. This is what Jesus does. Now, now listen, Jesus not only talks about the mustard seed, what is so powerful is that Jesus Christ actually is the mustard seed. Think about it. What is a mustard seed? It's something small and unattractive that you put into the ground and dies and from it much fruit comes. And what was Jesus Christ? Isaiah 53 says you wouldn't even recognize him. Isaiah 53, a prophecy about Christ, says there was nothing about him that was attractive. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men. From whom men he's a man from whom men hide their faces. So Jesus comes and like the mustard seed, he gives his life and out of it comes this massive tree. Now it's interesting. In the Old Testament, they kept saying, would there be a tree? Would there be a tree that would connect heaven and earth? Would there be a tree that would bring together divinity and humanity? And the answer is the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is where humanity and divinity come together. It's where, it's the tree to where the Gentiles can come and build the nest. The birds, they can build the nest. It's a place where people can be forgiven. And the call as we leave our third year and head into our fourth year is for us as a church to be committed to the external journey of coming from a mustard seed to the mustard tree and the internal journey of letting the yeast of the gospel affect every area of our life. That's it. Those are the two journeys that you and I and us as a church, that's where we're headed. We are part of the external journey that Jesus Christ has been on that's going 12 disciples to, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the journey. And the internal journey is the journey of letting the gospel influence and inform your life so you become like Jesus and you become the godliest version of yourself. And you do that by living a life with God under the rule of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, that is our prayer. The cross of Christ is that tree to where we can find shelter and rest and comfort and forgiveness. And I pray if in this room there's anybody that has never entered the kingdom of God. The command of Christ is to repent and believe and enter. To give you our sin and to give you ourselves. To transfer trust from ourselves to our Savior, Lord. If there's anyone who needs to do that, I pray they would do that right now. 
Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that we would be committed to the external journey of seeing the mustard seed become a tree and the internal journey of seeing the leaven of the gospel inform and influence every area of our lives, especially the areas we don't want it to, Lord. And that we would believe that our life would be better in the biblical sense if we would let the kingdom of God touch it. We pray this in your name. Amen.